Let me tell you a story about when I was a first starting out in my career as a psychologist. Um, I went to the American Psychological Association. I was a fresh assistant professor at my university, and I was trying to figure out how am I going to do this work as a Christian and evangelical in the field of LGBT studies. And uh, I was sitting in at a session where two gay psychologists were talking about Christians. They were talking about Christians who had left the gay community to enter into Christian ministries that these two psychologists felt were harmful to them. And so the one person said to the audience, we are failing our people, by which he meant we're failing to meet the religious and spiritual needs of gay people who are Christians who leave us to go to these Christian ministries that are hurting them. Now, I'm thinking to myself, first of all, is that's are, they, are these ministries harmful? That's an interesting like, empirical question that I ended up studying for the next seven years, but it's another, another talk. Um, but I was really struck that I was surprised that a gay psychologist would think that he had more in common with these Christians by virtue of being gay than I would have by virtue of being a Christian. And it struck me later as I was having lunch that I had never heard a pastor from the pulpit say something similar to say something like this, we're failing our people, by which the pastor would mean we're failing to meet the needs for identity and community. And so these people are leaving our community and finding it in the broader gay community. And so that really shifted my thinking about how I was going to conduct research and work in this space, um, helped me see through the eyes of different people here. I think when tough topics like this come up, though, there's sort of two tendencies in Christian circles that are extremes that I want to encourage us to avoid. So one tendency is to sort of, okay, the cultural storms are around us, and so we want to batten down the hatches, that sort of, that image, or you want to circle the wagons and sort of stay safe, and so we sort of hunker down and sort of weather the storm, right? That's what we do when we think that there's going to be cultural storms around norms regarding sex and gender. That's one strategy. Another strategy on the other side is to war in the culture. Like, I'm going to be a culture warrior. These are my enemy. And so you respond to a topic, including the people represented by that topic, as though they are the enemy. And I think that that is a misguided impulse. Okay? So I don't think we want to do that, and I don't think we want to batten down the hatches. I think there's other ministry images that would be more useful to the body of Christ as we engage a very difficult topic. I vote for a, a way of doing this called convicted civility seasoned with compassion. Convicted civility is a phrase from Richard Mao, who used to be the president at Fuller Theological Seminary. And what his observation was is that we have too many Christians who are strong on convictions, but you wouldn't want them to represent you in, in a diverse and pluralistic culture because they're not really kind people. Like They kind of can be mean-spirited at times. And you have other Christians who are so strong on civility, you have no idea what they believe in. And so there's this need for balancing convictions and civility. And the only thing I would add to that, just to have a third C there, is to season that with compassion, to see through the eyes of the other so that we can have a little more empathy and compassion to direct our ministry attempts. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from Matthew 10. And I want to look at a familiar passage where Jesus is commissioning his disciples to do kingdom ministry. And I'm going to read from the message, which I know, you know, people sometimes might, you know, but I'm a psychologist. What, do I, what am I doing up here? So um, 
And uh, here's what Here's what is recorded. It says, don't begin by traveling to some far-off place to convert unbelievers. Don't try to be dramatic by tackling some public enemy. Go to the lost, confused people right here in the neighborhood. Tell them that the kingdom is here. Bring health to the sick. Raise the dead. Touch the untouchables. Kick out the demons. You've been treated generously, so live generously. Don't think you have to put on a fundraising campaign before you start. You don't need a lot of equipment. You are the equipment. And all you need to keep that going is three meals a day. Travel light. When you enter a town or a village, don't insist on staying in a luxury inn. Get a modest place with some modest people and be content there until you leave. When you knock on a door, be courteous in your greeting. If they welcome you, be gentle in your conversation. If they don't, quietly withdraw. Don't make a scene. Shrug your shoulders. Be on your way. You can be sure that on Judgment Day they'll be sorry, but it's no concern of yours now. So stay alert. This is hazardous work I'm assigning you. You're going to be like sheep running through the wolf pack. So don't call attention to yourselves. Be as cunning as a snake and inoffensive as a dove. There's a couple things here. We're just looking for general biblical guidance on complex issues. And this was a sending out, not how do we position ourselves as a church and what does this look like for me. So there's some things that we might you know, parse out in terms of application. But what I want to take from this is the idea of wisdom and how you position yourself in relation to complicated topics like the LGBTQ discussion. In different translations, they have phrases for this kind of, um, what I read as cunning and inoffensive, right? So on the next, uh, yeah. So shrewd and innocent is what the NIV says. Shrewd and harmless, the NLT says. Wary and harmless, wise and innocent. I love the idea of wisdom. Like, pray for wisdom. And then I would, if it were me translating, which we're all glad I'm not, it would be, don't be unnecessarily antagonistic. Don't be a pill. So we want to frame our responses around wisdom, being wise as we engage a difficult topic, as we balance truth and love, biblical clarity, and charity and grace. One thing that I think can help us with this is to identify some nuances. One is that there's at least three different layers of identity that you may be called to minister to. And the three layers are political identity, public identity, and private identity. And so I'm going to go through each one of these. Most of us are not called to engage at every one of these levels. It would be pretty rare for all of us to be engaged to call that. But um, most of us are called to at least one of these areas. None of us are exempted. We're all doing kingdom work. So the first one um, is a political identity, right? So this really has to do with, in one of my books, I wrote about people who are assertive advocates. This is an ideological battleground, and they're coming at you from more of an assertive advocate position um, to take issue with your, your position. So not most people you interact with, most people you interact with are not going to come at this from that political ideological standpoint. But I have this from time to time. One time I was presenting on um, the study that was sparked by that conversation at the APA. I did do a study on questions about Christian ministries and change and, and harm and things like that. Anyway, I was presenting the findings of this study at my own university, and a local activist saw the flyer for that and put out a YouTube video calling. He said, I'm calling all my LGBTQ brothers and sisters to come with me and stare down this son of a gun. And um, I'm editing it slightly for this audience, but... Um, 
you can imagine it was a, quite a video. And uh, so I watched that. I saw this. It was brought to my attention, and I was praying about it, and I was talking with a friend of mine about what to do with that. Like, what does convicted civility do when you encounter something like that? And so with his wisdom and his guidance, we decided we'd call him. So we called him and invited him to campus. I mean, he's coming anyway, so he's coming to protest, so we might as well invite him, um, you know, to be my guest, to meet with me, talk with me. And so he agreed to come. I mean, he was, you know, he's coming. So, um, and they did. They filled up the first three rows. They just stared daggers at me as I presented this information. I talked just as I'm talking to you now. He got back on YouTube, and he made another video, and he said, you know, I got to tell you, it wasn't quite what I thought. Um, I didn't agree with everything the guy said, but it was different than I thought. It was really interesting to hear him take on different things. Like that. It kind of went into this really reasonable response. And you know, we met later for coffee, and I was checking in with him about all this a few weeks later, and he said he was just eviscerated by the LGBTQ community, by some portions of it, for not using the opportunity to capitalize on taking me down. And he was so put off by the way he was treated by that community juxtaposed to how he was treated by the Christian community that received him. He ended up leaving activism and went down a different path in his life. Um, another one of the activists who was there met for, with me for coffee as well, and he said, you're not anything like what I thought you'd be like based on how people in my world talk about you. I thought you'd have horns coming out of your head and smoke coming out of your nostrils, and you're like the nicest guy. Now, he was raised in the church, this man, and his encounter with Christians reminded him of a childhood he had long forgotten. And over time, as the Holy Spirit worked in his life, he decided to give church another chance. And he actually recommitted his life to Christ. He goes to the church that I go to, and he said, I could share this story with you. Um, Now, that's not a typical outcome when you encounter assertive advocates. But what I would say is that under every assertive advocate was at one time a sincere struggler. And when you minister to people in that realm, you minister to these layers that reside underneath the exterior. But most of us are going to work in the area of public identity. And public identity just means this is a gay or lesbian or transgender person for whom that is a demographic variable, like sex or gender or age or race or ethnicity. This is part of their experience, but they're not in the political realm advocating for anything. They're just making a living, paying a mortgage, mowing their lawn. They're just doing life like everybody else. So I don't want to make my encounters with them about this topic. I want to have a holistic approach to who they are as a person. Otherwise, I'm making it about this, and I'm being unnecessarily antagonistic. So we do this well. We do this well when someone's agnostic, when someone's an atheist, when someone's from a different faith background or no faith background. Like, we sort of know how to do that. But when someone presents as gay or lesbian or transgender, it's like all of that stuff we know how to do gets jumbled up, and we're like, I have no idea what to do. And we free, we're like a deer in the headlights, and it gets pretty difficult for us. Let me give you a little bit of background from a study that was done by a friend of mine, Andy Marin, who at one time ran the Marin Foundation. He wrote a book called Us Versus... Oh, I'm sorry, Us Versus Us. Yeah, Us Versus Us. And this was a study of about 2,000 gay and lesbian people 
So it was a sample. I don't know how representative it was, but he wasn't recruiting through religious organizations. He was just asking people to participate in this, and he was asking about their faith and their faith background, among many other things. Here's a couple percentages that came out of this study. He reported that 86% of his surveyed people indicated that they were raised in a faith community. 86%. 54% of the gay and lesbian transgender people left their religious community after the age of 18. 76% of gay and lesbian bisexual people indicated that they're open to returning to their religious community and its practices, even if that community didn't change its doctrinal position on sexuality. 36% of gay and lesbian people continue their faith practices after age 18. And 80% of gay or lesbian people regularly pray regardless of identification or affiliation. I want to pick up on that 36% that continue faith practices after the age of 18. Why would they do that? Why do they do that? Here's three themes that Andy found in his research. One is conviction. It's what people believed, right? They continued their faith practice after age 18 when so many other people tubed it because it was a conviction that they believed. The take-home point is for the church, teach and disciple young people to know and love Christ. Don't try to figure out all of like all of this in someone's life as though they've got to figure all this out before they know and are discipled to know Christ. Teach and disciple people to know and love Christ. That's the place of conviction so that they know that this is true. They have a personal relationship with Christ. They're encountering the work of the Holy Spirit throughout their life. Second was comfort. One person, Peter, said, I keep going because it's a safe place for me. I've been a part of it for so long. I know how to work with and around its dynamics. It's where I can keep figuring things out. Here's a 33-year-old bisexual man who's a Christian, grows up in the church and says, I'm pretty comfortable with it. I know how to kind of do it. And it's a place where I can figure this out. This is exactly what people are doing. They're navigating difficult terrain and they're trying to figure out how their faith relates to their sexuality and vice versa. He's trying to figure it out. The take-home point is facilitate a climate that feels safe where someone could figure it out. They'd have the, 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 the space, the community, the hospitality to figure things out within a framework of biblical teaching. We've done a study of, uh, at Christian colleges and universities where we've studied people who are same-sex attracted and are Christians going to Christian colleges, and we've asked them about campus climate. And often it's difficult to be at a Christian college because of what other people say. Um, Now, it's not necessarily the teachings that's the issue. It's the way people interact with them. It's not so much faculty and staff. It's other students. And what do they say? They say derogatory things like, stop acting so gay or stop being so gay or that's so gay, which is meant to say that's so stupid or that's so weird. Stop doing that. And so people are sort of doing that on the residence hall. How likely is it for an 18 or 19-year-old to go to their resident assistant and say, hey, you know the way everybody's teasing each other and joking with each other? That's something I happen to be dealing with in my life. Well, they're not likely to do that, right? It sets a climate that makes it difficult for people to walk with other people to navigate that space. They isolate further, and when you isolate further, things probably come out sideways in less healthy ways. And sometimes the Christian community can sort of back up and say, see, you are who we thought you were. And we don't realize how complicit we've been in creating an atmosphere that leads people to go underground and not be able to ask and be in relationship and navigate this space in a way that's felt safe. The last one was connection. 
People talked about being in discussion groups. Some of them were Bible studies, some non, not necessarily Bible studies. Some were volunteer opportunities like charitable outreaches. Some were volunteer opportunities in the church like being part of the choir, just being at corporate worship or if they were Catholic, going to Mass. The take-home point is create many points of connection for people in your faith community. Create opportunities for people to be plugged in because they're you're, you're essentially, they're going to be drawn to other communities that will say, we can plug you in. We can create a sense of identity and community for you. How well are we doing that as a church? So there's a ministry in the UK called Living Out that's a group of conservative Christians who experience same-sex attraction. They're navigating that space, and they put together a little assessment that churches could use to kind of say, well, how are we doing with this? So I'm going to read through 10 items And you can begin to wrestle with, how are we with that? So they're kind of answered true, false, or unsure. So I'm not asking you to say anything about that, but just kind of let that sit with you a little bit. Okay, so your church family meetings include people who could be labeled as either same-sex attracted or gay. Derogatory language or stereotyping towards such people. Now, they use the language sexual minority groups. All they mean by that is they're numerically in the minority. They're not making a political statement there, but people with these attractions would, these derogatory language about them would not come from the pulpit, would not be tolerated. It's not how we're going to talk about people. Even when we have a biblical sexual ethic, we're not going to talk about people in a way that suggests they're anything less than made in the image of God. Okay, we're going to encounter other people in a way that honors them. Same-sex sexual um, oh, all in your church know that we all experience sexual brokenness and all are being encouraged to confess their sins. And so we're not just asking this group to do it. It's something that we all do. And this group becomes a subset of everybody else whose own sexuality and other aspects of our lives are broken. Same-sex sexual relationships are not mentioned in isolation from other patterns, sinful patterns of behavior or from the forgiveness that's offered to all people through faith in Christ crucified. All in your church are hearing the same call to radical self-sacrifice of themselves in response to God's giving himself in Jesus. On the next one, all in your church are encouraged to develop an identity founded first and foremost in their union with Christ. A godly Christian sexual orientation would never prevent them from exercising their spiritual gifts or serving in leadership. So this is a mature Christian who's discipled and knows Christ The fact that this person experiences same-sex attractions wouldn't preclude them from serving in the kingdom. We all have things that we are, our signature areas of our lives that we've given over to God and we're saying, Lord, would you mortify this in me? Would you work in me? Would you help me become more Christ-like? None of us in leadership or anywhere else is exempt from having areas that God's working in our lives to make us more Christ-like. And that would be true for this group of people as well. God's gifts of Either singleness or marriage are equally promoted and valued and practically supported in your church family life together. In that sense, you look at your ministry to singles and you say, how well are we meeting the needs of singles? And are we trying to essentially send the message that they should get married? Or are they otherwise second-class citizens in the body of Christ? Or do we have a high view of both singleness and marriage? Because gay people will be a subset of single people in the body of Christ. Church family members instinctively share meals and homes and holidays and festivals and money and children with others from different backgrounds as life and life situations. Folks are going to have needs for intimacy that are either going to be met 
in other communities, the LGBTQ community, or they're going to be met in the body of Christ. These needs for intimacy are very practical things. How are the holidays spent? Spending time together. Sharing meals together. Having people over. Doing life together helps meet needs for intimacy. Are you family to other people? And then lastly, no one would feel pressured into expecting or seeking any healing or change that God doesn't, has not promised any of us until the renewal of all things. Be careful that we offer healing and ministry that's consistent to what's offered to everybody. Okay, so that is public identity. That's your neighbor, your coworker, family member. The last group of people would be a private identity. These are people who are sincere strugglers. They're not assertive advocates. They're not your next-door neighbor. These are people who've come to you and saying, I'm sincerely struggling with this, and I'm looking for counsel and ministry and people to walk with me through a sincere and challenging area of my life. Let me go back over those 10 things. I want to pull five of them that strike me as very relevant when you have a ministry approach to someone who's sincerely struggling. So first, all in your church know that we all experience sexual brokenness and all are being encouraged to confess our sexual sins. It's really important to not single out this group of people when they're sincerely struggling with this. There are many more people in your church who are struggling with their heterosexual impulses and other related things than there ever will be gay people struggling with things in a sincere manner. So you don't want to have this group be the only group. It's something for all of us. All in your church are hearing the same call to radical self-sacrifice. I call this costly obedience. When I think of friends of mine who are living a celibate life as gay men or women, I can't say to them, good luck with that while I go home to my wife and children. If they're living a costly obedience in keeping with a biblical sexual ethic, it's got to cost me too. How is it costing me? How will I be family to people who are navigating that difficult terrain? It's got to cost me. That's what it means to be a body of Christ. All in your church are encouraged to develop an identity founded first and foremost on their union with Christ. Friends, this is a kingdom identity that we're all to have. It doesn't mean these other things don't matter. But it means, first and foremost, that we have a kingdom identity. Church family members share meals and homes and holidays and things like that. Um, We try to do that with people who have been a part of our lives. We've had people live with us. We've done different activities with people to bring them in, gay or straight, single, but just trying to help be family to people. And then this last one, no one would be pressured into expecting or seeking any healing or change that God has not promised any of us until the renewal of all things. So in our history as a church, we've often promised heterosexuality as the outcome of healing for people navigating this terrain. And I'm not saying that that's never happened from the research that we've done, but I'm saying I think we've promoted it as the standard by which we then measure everybody else. And I don't think it happens as commonly as people have wanted to believe it has. What does the Bible actually promise us in this area? I think Scripture promises us Christ-likeness. And we want to be careful not to equate Christ-likeness with heterosexuality. There are plenty of people who are heterosexual who are not particularly Christ-like. Just leave that there. So um, some of our efforts have just not been good at sort of restoring Christ in people's lives. I remember this reminds me of a 
recent attempt by an 80-year-old woman to restore a 19th century fresco of Christ um, by the Spanish artist Elia Garcia Martinez. And this 80-year-old woman is very sweet. She, she replaced nearly all of Martinez's original brush strokes, and her reimagination of Christ was actually quite disturbing. Um, the elderly woman turned herself into authorities and made it clear that it was really begun with good intentions, but it had kind of gotten out of hand. And um, I think sometimes our ministry efforts begin with good intentions, but they send the wrong message that our standard for what it means to follow Christ will look a certain way. You can be biblically faithful, follow a biblical sexual ethic, and the person can still have this be a part of their life, but they give it over to God and they say, God, help me to be a good steward of the experiences that I have. Help me to find a sense of meaning and purpose, a kingdom identity in you with an enduring same-sex attraction. That's going to be a more likely path for many people. Can we do that well? So I love the idea of not pressuring people into expecting a healing or change that God has not promised to any of us until the renewal of all things. So when I enter into these discussions, I really am praying for this wisdom and this don't be unnecessarily antagonistic. And I think of Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7. I love how Oswald Chambers rephrases this. He says, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, of cowardice, of craven and cringing and fawning fear, but he has given us a spirit of power and of love and a well-balanced mind and discipline and self-control. This is where we begin. I really do. I pray for this all the time. A well-balanced mind and discipline and self-control as I engage these topics. So what is next? I would say a couple of things. First, pray for wisdom and discernment in light of these nuances. Who are you called to minister? At the level of the political identity, the personal identity of your neighbors, I'm sorry, the public identity of your neighbors, or the private identity of someone who's asking for ministry help. So I pray this a lot of times. Guide me in how to best relate to this friend or family member. Help me to see her as you see her. One of my good friends years ago is, is gay. Years, she's still gay, but years ago she was, her views on this changed and she became, um, she began to view that same-sex behavior was morally permissible and her views changed, and she sat down for dinner with me one night and was sharing this with me, and she was worried that our friendship would end, that I would end the relationship because she had reached a different conclusion than I had about this. And so I was praying this, Lord, help me to see her as you see her. What would you have me do in response to this good friend of mine? And this is the image that came to mind. I don't know if it's appropriate, but... um, I've, uh, I've heard in watching television and movies that this happens, but in a casino, when you want to be all in on a bet you've made, you push your chips across the table and you say, I'm all in. So this is what I did. I sat across from her and I made this gesture and I said, look, we are lifelong friends. I love you and I'm all in with you. There's really nothing you could say that would keep that from being true. Now she knows I disagree with her. I think she's in doctrinal error, but I love her. And I continue to pray for, Lord, how would you have me relate to this good friend of mine that you love and that you want to have um, a deeper and more abiding relationship with? Also, another next step is adopt a flexible ministry posture that allows for a range of gestures. Andy Crouch distinguishes ministry postures from ministry gestures. 
Gestures are like specific movements, like to embrace somebody or defend somebody or move towards somebody or move away from somebody or, or lean in or lean away. But you want to have a lot of different ministry gestures in relationship to people, and they come from your ministry posture. A ministry posture is a more firm or fixed way of holding yourself in relation to a topic. So I want to say be careful about fixed postures that limit your gestures. So for example... You might say in this topic, my ministry posture is that the LGBT community is the enemy that I need to shout down. And if you treat a group as an enemy, you'll have limited ministry gestures that come from that posture. Or you might say, "Um, this is a problem to be fixed in relating to a loved one. And so if they're a problem to be fixed, that's your fixed posture. You'll have limited gestures in knowing how to relate to that loved one. So you want to have a flexible ministry posture. So what might that be? So for me, I see this group of people as people to come alongside. I think of them as hiking difficult terrain. So I'm willing to hike with them, sort of like Bear Grylls, right? I'm on the trail with them trying to hike difficult terrain. That's really the the ministry posture that I use, and it gives me a lot of flexibility in the gestures and how I care for people. So adopt a ministry posture that allows for a range of gestures. Related to that, a friend of mine, Janelle Paris, talks about how names create realities. In church communities, we've often named this group of people. We've named them sinners. We've named them criminals. We've named them the mentally ill. We've named them addicted. We've named them sick. Liberal churches have named them a blessing. I have not found those names have been helpful ministry approaches. But I want you to begin to think about what name would help create a reality for ministry for you to this population. What name would help create that? For me, the name that I've landed on is Beloved. Because it has nothing to do with the other person and what they need to do. It has to do with the character and nature of God. That God names people as beloved, and he wants a relationship with them. He wants to draw them into a relationship with them. Let me invite the worship team to come back up as we bring this to a close. I want you to begin to think about what names create realities in how you think about this. It shapes how you pray about this population. It shapes how you pray about a family member, a friend, a neighbor, even entering into difficult dialogues with people. Names create realities. Adopt a flexible ministry posture that allows for a range of ministry gestures. And lastly, take the long view and leave the outcome to God. Friends, people are not projects. Don't think of the LGBTQ community or a friend or your neighbor or your coworker as a project. Nobody wants to be a project. But people do want to know that God wants a relationship with them, that God loves them, that you love them. At the end of the day, you're asking them to trust with their sexuality or with their gender, to trust that there's a God in heaven who's a good and loving father whose plan for their sexuality or their gender is better than their own plan. How do any of us do that with any aspect of our lives, our finances, our marriage, our singleness, our children, our sexuality, how do any of us get to the point where we say, God in heaven, 
I trust that you're a father whose plan for that part of my life is better than my own plan. I give this over to you. The only way any of us have ever done that is we ran into people who, who bore the image and name of Christ, who loved us radically, who showed us that God loves us as a good father, invited us into a relationship with him, and we began to trust over time through the work of the Holy Spirit that his plan for us would be better than our own. You've got to begin there. Begin there by having those kinds of relationships, an enduring presence in someone's life that shows them that God loves them. Friends, it begins by asking God for wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom to see this person the way you see them. Help me to draw them towards a kingdom identity. And Lord, first and foremost, create a kingdom identity in me. Let me pray.